Hello, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with the Slate spoiler special on Smoke and Aces. I don't know why I feel the need to say the title that way, but I because do. Because there's no G. Because it's just it's smoking. smoking aces, uh, the new Joe Carnahan movie. And just before we get started, a warning: if you haven't seen the movie and you don't want the ending and the many many twists in this thriller spoiled for you, then you might want to wait and listen to this after you have seen it. So, I'm here with Mike Pesca, who's an NPR reporter. Hi, Mike. Hey. And Mike and I had the dubious pleasure of seeing uh, Joe Carnahan smoking aces together last night. Actually, it was a pleasure. It was a, it was a total delight to see it. But it's a, it's a pretty horrible movie, in my opinion. Mike, do you want to even attempt a plot summary of this incredibly convoluted? Yeah, story? I think we'd be giving it more credit than it deserves to really summarize the plot. But let's just say it's a version of a mad, 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 mad world, or rat race, or cannonball run. But instead of a race to the finish line, it's a race to kill a guy, and the guy they're trying to kill. All these different assassin teams are trying to kill is a guy named Buddy Aces, who's played by Jeremy Piven. He's one of those, you know, actress slash model and singer slash songwriter. He's a magician slash mob boss, and he's going to turn evidence against the mob. And all these people, for various reasons, are trying to kill him. We join the action in the hotel, and we uh, see them, uh, the different assassination teams try to kill each other and try to kill him. All right, that was nicely done, especially because I was going to point out that, as we both noted when watching the movie last night, I noticed we both consulted our watches at the exact same moment in this movie about 25 minutes in, and it was not because we were bored by the movie yet. It was because the setup alone, what I thought of as the sort of Tarantino-esque setup, where various crime bosses and, um, you know, hit people and so forth are meeting and talking about the exact timing of this attempt to kill Jeremy Piven. That alone, basically the character introduction and setup took 25 minutes. And after that, there were still two more characters who came in, right? The Jason Bateman character, for example, came in after that. So it's an unbelievably complicated and convoluted plot that throws a lot of threads out there, a lot of which are never tied up. So anyway, we thought we were seeing explosions. We were really seeing exposition. And your conception, which I think is a good one, Dana, is this is three movies, uh, a trilogy in one. And the first third was all this exposition. The middle third was the adrenaline pumping assassination attempts. And then we'll get to the last third and we'll spoil it. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of Tarantino for the first 25 minutes, then sort of what we were conceiving of as a Guy Ritchie movie, just sort of a, a, a heist, Vegas heist movie, sort of Ocean's Eleven-esque for the second act. And then the final act is some sort of strange maudlin medical drama that we'll get, we'll get to later. So any, any comments you wanted to make about the exposition, you know, midway through the film? Like, what didn't we like about the Jeremy Piven character and, and the sort of convergence of, of killers? Going into the movie, I think that the trailer would have you believe that this is a real Jeremy Piven vehicle because he is Buddy Ace. He's the title character. But you don't wind up caring about him so much. And his actual arc, will he live or die? You you can't really care about it. He has a few speeches. He acts like a coked up musician. That's the cliche. The non-cliche is that he acts like a coked up magician. And I think the viewer is drawn to the movie because you're like, oh, I love Jeremy Piven. He's going to do some version of his Ari Gold character, go on rants. There's a couple mini rants, but none as satisfying as a good entourage-type rant. Here's something odd I noticed about the Jeremy Piven character. He doesn't really do any magic. We never see him even do the least bit of impressive sleight of hand. He sort of throws some cards around once in a while and does a sort of almost a tea-leaf reading where he pulls a card randomly out of the deck and interprets the meaning of the card that comes out. But you'd think that especially a sort of tricky, you know, very manic actor like Jeremy Piven for a part like this would learn a couple magic tricks or a little sleight of hand. Yeah, all the magic tricks that he did could be pretty easily explained via editing. Maybe the director just thought no one's impressed with magic on the screen. I don't know about that. There were two great movies, well, not great movies necessarily, but two movies that did magic very well last year that people love to see, The Illusionist and The the Prestige. And uh, I'm sure that the actors in those also studied a lot of magic tricks, even if 
things did end up being done by camera tricks. Well, anyway, to no, me, that was very disappointing. I wanted to see Jeremy Piven really do some impressive card tricks. If there was no magic, literally, there was at least magic in terms of the editing, in terms of the camera moves. I think it was a really slick movie that, like I said, adrenaline pumping. There was one scene where there was uh, two shootouts going on at separate floors. They cut from one to the other, and your blood really had to be pumping. And that who, that's who the movie is aimed at. This is a movie, by the way, it was co-produced by a British studio, and it was released in England beforehand, and I think that the producers of the the movie think it'll be especially popular in England, because movies like Snatch and Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels have been popular, and that's it's kind of in the same mold as those movies. But also like those movies, more caricatures than characters, and that's okay, it never promises to get a little deeper, but some of the characters that we meet range from interesting, and we could talk about the two female hit women, to just ridiculous, a trio of neo-Nazis who seem so inept at their jobs. They're violent, they're bloody, but it doesn't seem like with their tactics, which is essentially to blindly rush into a room and use a machete where a gun would be the better thing to use, it doesn't seem like that technique would ever actually murder anyone. And when they're introduced, they're called three kamikaze brothers, and you realize why. They're obviously bound to die. Yeah, I mean, I think I tried to treat this movie as a fun thrill ride, sort of a la Pulp Fiction or something, but However good the craftsmanship, I just I couldn't believe in any of these stories. And the worst of all was when Piven would start to go kind of maudlin on us and we'd get some piano music and suddenly we were supposed to care about his death that we'd been sort of cheering everybody along, you know, in this race to get him. But let's let's move to the conclusion, as long as we're supposed to be spoiling things here. Um there's this well, you want to summarize the conclusion? Let's spoil one other thing first, which oh, is Oh yeah, a there's really, an important spoiler. <laughs> which is a really good spoiler, something that I think movie fans will really welcome. Ben Affleck he gets top billing, maybe it's in alphabetical order, but he does get top billing in the uh, credits. He dies about 40 minutes into the movie. If that, he's got sort of the Janet Lee role in Psycho, right? Where you think he's going to be a pretty major character, if not the main character, and then he's unceremoniously blown away, and his dead body is actually forced to talk by his killer. The guy takes his dead lips and sort of moves them um, to speak. So you kind of can't believe he's dead. You think he's going to reappear in flashback or something, but he's gone. Affleck's out. He's dead, and with him, his uh, horrible attempt at a Midwestern accent. Also doing a bad accent, Andy Garcia, channeling some version of either Italian or Southern or mainly Pacinoville, where... Everything ends in a hua. Gothic, Cuban, Pacino, Southern. I don't know what to do with that. So, but let's move to the conclusion where, well, we'll just to set it up very quickly. You know, we've got um, the old, aging, dying mob boss that's had to hit out on Piven for the entire movie. Sort of the mastermind of all of these various plots to kill him and cut out his heart. The mob boss has specified, I want his heart brought to me. Then we find out at the end that the reason, this actually could be a great twist in a different kind of movie. The reason the mob boss wants this heart is because Jeremy Piven is actually secretly his son, his long lost son. And he needs the heart for a heart transplant. This is the only heart that's compatible with his. I actually think that's a great, clever plot twist on paper. But by the time that moment in the movie arrived, I'd I'd had it. Yeah, because they get you with the piano music underneath. And they try to have it both ways. I bought the aspects of the movie that were essentially like a comic book come to life. Oh, that character is cool for this quirk. Oh, the other character makes masks like in the Mission Impossible TV series and can assume the role and become someone's doppelganger. But I totally don't buy any serious drama and the entire last 20 minutes or so is the main fbi agent played by a guy named ryan reynolds who was van wilder in those movies uh he is on a mission to avenge the death of his partner ray liotta's character and he has a confrontation with the fbi assistant director andy garcia garcia lays out the whole plot of the movie we realize that all these guys were killed in the service of a not so nice mob boss and then andy garcia basically fires and tells uh the ryan reynolds character to get out of there 
And at this point, I have to say, if there are any assistant directors of the FBI watching this movie or listening to this podcast, take my advice. Once you fire someone who wants to kill a guy on life support, don't let your former employee into the room alone with the guy on life support. Because he's going to pull the plug. Yeah, and that's when the movie turned into Million Dollar Baby. And that, that's, this is the maudlin ER medical drama that we talked about. That suddenly all of this, this Vegas uh, hijinks converges on this moment that an FBI agent sitting between two men on life support reaches behind him, grabs the two plugs, and yanks them out of the wall. It should be a comic scene, actually. It's funny <laughs> when you talk about it, but the movie treats it as, as sort of high drama and tragedy and a great um, turning point in the conscience of this, of this FBI agent. I mean, personally, I had seen the father-son connection coming for a long time, ever since they threw out that paternity suit yeah, early in the movie. This is a movie the heart goes, transplant did surprise me, though, and I, I kind of liked it. This is a movie that goes by so fast, nothing is wasted. There's no reason they would throw a line out there. And a paternity suit, there's no reason that they would reference twice a numerous facial surgeries, except if that's definitely going to pay off in the end. It's the old rule. If someone coughs in the first reel, he has tuberculosis by the third, especially in a movie like this, where nothing is wasted, let alone building characters. So then one last question, Mike. An interesting thing about this movie, the entire time I was watching it, I was thinking, does Mike like it? I actually didn't know whether you were getting into the movie or not, because it's such an unreconstructed guy movie. I was thinking, is it just me? Can I just not get into this and go along for the ride? And it's like a sort of a Guy Ritchie adventure that I just don't get. But then we came out and it turned out you agreed with me that it pretty much didn't work. But do you think it'll be a guy crowd-pleasing movie? This is how the movie works. I don't go see movies on the basis of, oh, I need some entertainment. Let's show up at the multiplex and let's choose from this list. If I were that kind of guy and if I had seen all these movies and all the Oscar contenders are out, so there are a lot of good movies still in the multiplex. But if I said, look, I just want to be entertained and adrenalized for an hour and a half, it actually would work. I mean, every moment Jason Bateman's on the screen, he's excellent. The two female assassins have good interplay. Alicia Keys plays one, but the better one is played by... Taraji uh, P. Henson of to, Hustle and Flow. Taraji Henson, who played the pregnant hooker in Hustle and Flow. She was great. Some great acting, some great camera moves, some great adrenaline. But overall, it doesn't really work, and it's a really, really shallow movie. I did realize that it was released on the one weekend in winter with no pro football. The weekend between the conference championship games and the Super Bowl, an empty movie for an empty weekend. Well, thanks a lot for seeing the uh, the movie with me, Mike, and, and thanks for joining me for this spoiler special. Was fun. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.